Well, today is a, a day that we focus on moms, and uh, you know, as a pastor, it's a tough day to prepare a message because, you know, you don't want to necessarily isolate a large group of people, but on the other hand, uh, it's important that we spend time, and the Bible talks about honoring, and uh, we will do that at the end of service today, but I want to talk to you this morning on the subject of being a woman of faith, and uh, before all of you guys close your eyes and begin snoring... Uh, <laughs> Everything that I'm going to say on the subject of being a woman of faith could be applied to being a person of faith. And so that's important that we get that out uh, right away. Uh, Ashley and I have had the tremendous privilege of being raised in a Christian home. And we never uh, will take that for granted. And uh, that's a wonderful and tremendous blessing to have moms that have been great examples to us uh, over the years. Being actively involved in ministry, being people of faith. And I would say to you that out of anything that you could possibly leave your children, a legacy of faith is, is a wonderful thing to leave your children. Say go for a boat, house, summer property, whatever else you want to leave them, mom and dad, we'll take it. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, I put all those things aside for a mom that was a person of faith. Amen. You and I are called to be people of, of great faith. And, uh, you know, moms play a variety of different roles in the home. And uh, it's an overwhelming task. Uh, even this morning, I told Ashley, I'm going to try to take all three kids to church and give you an extra, you know, half hour. And uh, that's probably the last time those words will ever come out of my mouth. <laughs> and all I did was drive them. I mean, she still helped dress them, get their hair ready and everything like that. I had someone years ago say, Zach, we always know when you get your kids ready. And I said, why? They said, their hair just looks horrible. <laughs> but at any given point, here are some of the job titles of a mom that's in the home. CEO of the household, personal chef, head cheerleader, housekeeper, taxi cop, cab driver. Judge mom, PhD in anger management, hairstyle, bedwetting patrol squad, keeper of all secrets, food tester, family therapist, toddler wrestling coach, errand runner, laundry machine operator, janitor, teacher, toy repair expert, financial management, art director, landscaper, potty trainer, search and rescue for lost toys, champion tickler, lifeguard, daycare provider, pers provider personal assistant for everyone. No, some, no thumb-sucking enforcer. Moms are a wardrobe stylist, personal shopper, toothbrush inspector, PTA coordinator, birthday coordinator, playdate coordinator, coordinator, scientist, sleep scientist. She's a scary monster patrol officer. Dramatic storyteller, backyard safety patrol, professional lullaby singer, boo-boo fixer, kisses and hugs expert, and she's a speech specialist. She's the vacation coordinator, tour guide, PhD in reverse psychology. She understands separ separation anxiety. She's a mother-in-law mediator, seamstress to frilly, frilly dresses and superhero costumes, Miss Fix-It, Fort Engineer, stain removal expert, bodyguard. Her name is Lady McGuire. Moms fill at any given point, one, if not 25 out of the 40 or so of those roles in the home today, and it's an overwhelming task. And you add to that the challenge that it seems like in our nation, that the institution of family just seems like it's just kind of being held on together by a thread. Christian values, it seems like, are being attacked and coming from every 
direction. And in our 21st century, the family unit seems like it's just falling apart. If you would agree with me, I think many of you would say amen to that. But I want to challenge you because a lot of times you can look at things that are going on in our world today and it can be so challenging. It can appear to be overwhelming at times. And maybe you just feel like, what's the point in even trying I was re reminded of some words from Pastor Abel recently when he said, when you look at the world today and the challenges that we face, how do you change the world? And he once said, to change the world, you change the one person that you have the ability to change, and that's yourself. And so it begins with you and I being people of faith. We're going to look this morning at a woman in the scriptures and I tried to pull a message from Acts on Mother's Day, but we're just going to kind of pause there for a minute. We'll jump back uh, next week into the book of Acts. I don't want to just stretch it today. But we're going to focus on an unnamed woman in the Bible that at the end of the day, Jesus summarized her life in four words that are very profound. And he said this. He said, you have great faith. You have great faith. We know in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we do not see. Someone once said that faith is believing in advance things that will only make sense in, it, in reverse. And as you read through the Gospels, one of the things that you'll realize about Jesus is he's a person that understands and recognizes faith. Like the one day that that woman reached out and touched the hem of his garment, he recognized the touch of faith. One day when he was with the disciples in a horrible storm and, and Jesus was sleeping and they wake him up in the middle of that storm. And many of you know the story. He, the storm ceases to exist and at his very spoken word. But then he looks at his disciples and he says, do you still have no faith? He understands no faith. He has sensed the touch of faith. We understand that in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 6 that he understands what little faith is. As he looks to his disciples and he says, if, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? And so it's more than that he understands the touch of faith or that he understands no faith or has recognized little faith. But there are two specific instances in scripture where Jesus talks about great faith and one is the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 where he looks to those Jesus that are around him he says very truly I tell you I haven't found anyone in Israel of such great faith but the second time that it's recorded in scripture is over a mom as she's pleading on behalf of her daughter and he says that she is a person of great faith and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, But before we do, I want to set up the context. The context is important to this passage of scripture that we're going to be in this morning. Jesus is uh, ministering. The large crowds are following him. He kind of needs to rest. He needs to relax. And he's going off. He's withdrawing uh, to, with his disciples. And, and there's these kind of, as you read through the gospels, it seems like the pressure is mounting in the life of Jesus. The multitudes are constantly surrounding him. They're convinced that he's the long-awaited Messiah. The signs and wonders point to that. 
but they're, they're not certain and they're not convinced of something because they believe that Jesus is going to deliver them from Roman oppression. The people feel like he's going to establish this earthly kingdom, that they're going to experience this kind of endless season of prosperity. And so the people are missing it in, on one hand, but on the other, they do recognize that he's the Messiah. Jesus is under pressure from Herod Antipas, who believes that Jesus is kind of John the Baptist, who's come back from the dead. And so anybody that's threatening this king's throne, he would execute just like he executed John the Baptist. But most of all, Jesus is under pressure from the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees of Galilee. They've determined in their minds to destroy Jesus because he had rebuked them. He made them an embarrassment. He basically said that they're ungodly traditions. And, and, and he, he starts kind of like exposing the religious system of that day. And things are, are, are escalating. And Jesus just kind of wants to get away. He wants to rest with his disciples. Perhaps he's going to speak to them, them about the soon crucifixion. And you ever just want to get away and, and it just gets thrown off by like an interruption. You ever have that before? You just want to go on vacation. You just kind of like need a break and then all of a sudden something happens that's unexpected. The 21st century translation or equivalent uh, to this for you moms would be one of those days that, you know, just can't end soon enough. You ever have those days? It's like one o'clock and you're like, okay, is it time to put the kids to bed yet? And it's just you clean up one mess and you turn your back and there's five other messes. You just can't keep up. Guys, let me tell you, if you ever walk into your home and honey, just look, your wife looks at you and says, honey, it's your turn. That's code. Women speaking code. Okay, that's code for you're on for the rest of the night because I need a break. And for the sake of your family, for the sake of our state, for the sake of your children, take over, guys, and just let her be. But you ever have one of those days you're just constantly, you know, you can't get the mouth fed, the body's closed fast enough, you throw your kids into bed, you, you, you pray like the shortest prayer ever, you read the family devotion so fast that you know your kids aren't understanding it, but the goal is just get them into bed. You run downstairs as soon as the eyes close, you throw your feet up on the couch, you just want the peace and quiet in your home, you just want to rest, you just want to relax, and you finally take a deep breath. And then you hear, Mom! Mom! I'm sick! You're like, shh. I don't want you now. You know, you ever have those times you just want to get away? And so Jesus leaves this area of the jurisdiction of both Herod and the religious leaders. He just wants to rest. The Gospel of Mark says he gets to this home where he doesn't want to be discovered, but there's this woman that knows that he's there. And all of a sudden, she's in this moment of desperation. She's fighting on behalf of the life of her child. She's not going to quit. She's not going to take no for an answer. She's desperate. She's going to persevere, and she pushes through every possible obstacle. And at the end of the day, she receives the miracle, and then Jesus says that she's a woman of great faith. And there's a couple things that I think we need to learn from her life this morning. As you turn to the, in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
These two specific areas aren't mentioned to kind of give you like the GPS coordinates of where Jesus is at specifically. But the Bible documents these two areas because it, it, they want the readers to know that this is some of Israel's most hated enemies in this region. As far as we know, during the life and the public ministry of Jesus, this was the only time he was outside of Jewish territories, outside the boundaries of, of Palestine. And so if you, you read that, you can understand, you could ask the question, well, why is he going there then? And I would say it's the same reason he went out of his way one day to sit at a specific well because he knew that there was a woman that was going to be there at a specific time, at a specific place that he was going to minister to. And there's this specific woman that's a Canaanite woman that's here. It says that she came from that vicinity. She came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples come to him and urge him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. Basically, she's bothering us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Jesus replied, is it not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs? Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and your daughter was healed from that very hour. Lord, we just thank you for your word today. As we approach the life of this unnamed woman in scripture, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to each one of us here today on the subject of being a person, being a woman of great faith. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a couple things from this passage of scripture that I want to highlight this morning to all of us that are here. Four principles of being a person of faith. The first we see in the beginning of this text in verse 22, it says, Crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. I would say the first piece is that people of great faith are those that are willing to cry out on behalf of others. This woman approaches Jesus and she's crying out. She's shouting. She's interrupting his rest on behalf of another person. What do we know about her? Well, she's a Canaanite woman. She's from the country north of Palestine. This area was hostile to Jews. They had a long history of animosity, but they had deep roots to, to Israel's history. We can assume that she's married. We understand that at least she had one child, but she's a Gentile. She's an alien. She has no hope, no claim on the Messiah. But that's basically all that we know about her. Thomas Nelson writes this. He says, positionally, we all should relate to this woman because this is the starting point of great faith. It starts when we acknowledge that we deserve only the judgment of God. And it is only because of his grace and the provision of mercy from the sacrifice of his son. This woman comes to Jesus. She's not intimidated to ask. She's not afraid to ask for a great Miracle. This request isn't necessarily for herself, but she's crying out on behalf of her daughter. And I want to challenge all of us today to recognize and to realize that at the end of the day, prayer really does change situations and circumstances. Yeah. 
And a lot of times that we pray, if, if we were all honest with, another, with one another, I think many of us would agree that the vast majority of time that we pray, we're praying for my needs, my wants, my desires. But I would say that people of great faith are willing to cry out to God on behalf of others. Moms, at the end of the day, in the busyness of life, there are times that God calls you to push aside those things and to cry out to him in prayer on behalf of your sons and daughters and for those that are far from him. Many times we underestimate the value of praying specifically for other people because of just the busyness life of life and many times we tend to be self-centered and self-focused but people of great faith are willing to cry out on behalf of others. And moms, I want to just encourage you today to, to always remember that God hears those prayers. That he sees the tears that you cry on behalf of your children, on behalf of a family member that's suffering from a disease, or it's someone that you love dearly that is far from God. He sees those tears and he understands the cries that we offer him in prayer. What are tears and prayers to the eyes and to the ears of God? The Bible says the revelation of John in chapter 5 verse 8. He gives this picture, this imagery of these four living creatures. And the Bible says that there's 24 elders that are falling down at the throne of God. And they're holding up these golden bowls that the Bible describes as incense, which are the prayers of the people of God. What are our prayers to God that he stores them in bowls? That our prayers are never forgotten. It's not like they go to the heavens and they hit a ceiling and they're gone. A lot of times we want fruit for the times that we pray. We want results. We want answer. But we get this imagery and revelation of prayers that are caught. The prayers that are, that are captured and that they're preserved in these bowls. And it's this wonderful and beautiful fragrance of, of incense. J.R. Miller describes it this way. He says there's a, this exquisite beauty. In the thought that true prayer is fragrance to God as it rises from the golden altars of believing and loving hearts. The pleading and the supplications of the people on earth are waved up to him from the lowly homes, from the humble sanctuaries and from the stately cathedrals, from sick rooms and from the darkened chambers of sorrow. As if the breath of flowers is waved from the rich gardens and the, and the fragrant free fields that God hears those prayers. Those prayers are significant. Those prayers are never forgotten. That as you and I cry out to God on behalf of, of other people. But then we see in Psalms that the writer David says that there's this element that God sees our prayers and he sees the tears and it's as if they're stored, he says, in bottles. It says, you put my tears into your bottle. Basically saying that God sees the sorrow. He remembers the grief and he never forgets. It's almost this picture of heaven with these vast, endless rows of shelves that contain the bottles that are the tears of the people of God. That as we cry out to him on behalf of others, as if they're labeled with names and prayer requests and needs. God sees your prayers. He understands the tears that were shed on behalf of your children. From the mom that cries out for her son or daughter that's far from from them, not only geographically, but they're far from relationship with Christ. He remembers those prayers. He sees those tears. It's the same tears that he has stored up in a bottle from those that are in the sex traffic industry in India to those that are starving in nations like Africa. He sees those tears. 
He understands and He hears our prayers as we cry out to Him on behalf of others. But the second part is easily overlooked to this idea of being a person of faith. The second thing is that this woman is interested in knowing that people of great faith are interested in knowing that she is specifically aware of what's going on in the life of her daughter. And it sounds obvious. In verse 22, it says, My daughter is suffering from demon possession. And so you can read those two words, demon possession, say, I don't understand that, I don't get that, therefore this verse is irrelevant to me, and some people will think that. Others of you are like, you know, I know exactly what that looks like, Zach. My son struggles from a demon, it's called disrespect. My kids, demonized, they don't know how to listen, they don't know how to pick up their stuff, they've got issues. And I would say the principle of this portion of this verse is not the issue of demon possession, but it's the reality that you and I should know and be interested in the needs of others that are around us as we cry out to God on behalf of others. Moms, can I challenge you that just because you live in the same home and sit across from the same dinner table as your kids and maybe your grandkids, just because you sit, drive to church together in a minivan or you shop together at Walmart or whatever store you go to does not absolutely guarantee that you're constantly and continually aware of the needs of your children. In the busyness of life, in the highs and buys, in the text messaging culture that we live in today, the, the, the stark reality is that, you know what, days and weeks and months, God forbid, years can pass by and people that we love People that we care about, unfortunately, there are times that those needs, you and I are not interested, we're not aware of those. I think it's a good reminder to realize that if we are going to be people of faith, whether it's at school or at your job or mom in the home, you and I must be people that are interested and aware of the needs of others around us each and every day of our lives. We've got to push aside busyness. We've got to stop at times and have serious conversations with people to get into their lives. I want to encourage you moms, communicate to your kids regularly. Be open and honest about the issues that are not only going on in your life, but that is going on in the lives of your kids. There's a balance with this because you ever meet one of the parents that they just, they're, they're all out there, but do you ever meet the parent that it's like their number one goal at the end of the day is just to be their kid's best friend. I mean, they just want to look cool. They want to act cool. They want to, you know, their, their goal is to be this, like, buddy of their child. You ever see a parent like that? They're out there. Trust me. I don't know if they wake up in the morning and that the primary focus is, like, being my kid's friend, but it seems like that. And I would say at the end of the day, if that's your philosophy in parenting, you'll fail your child. That God does not call you to be a buddy to your kid, but he calls you to be people that not only use things like structure and systems and responsibility, but, but there's this word that's being lost in our country today. It's called this, this thing called discipline. Do you know that you can unconditionally love your child and discipline them at the same time? They've got to know at the end of the day that mom is always fighting in my corner, that mom loves me, that she cares about me, that she supports me. But on the other hand, I would say that it's not our goal as parents to be friends. There are a lot of pastors that at the end of the day, their job, they feel like, is just to be a buddy to everybody in the church. And I would say to you that if you have that philosophy in ministry, you'll never share the truth. 
you'll compromise things in the home, mom, that you want to say, but for the sake of being a fun friend to your child, you won't speak truth in love. But you and I must be people that are willing to be interested and to know what's going on in our kids' lives. And so as this lady, this woman is crying out to Jesus, in verse 23, it's kind of interesting. Jesus doesn't answer a word to her. So if you picture this, she's crying out, she's pleading on behalf of her daughter, and Jesus is just kind of like standing there silent. So the disciples come over, so they're not necessarily right there, so maybe they walk across the room, and here's their response to Jesus, send her away. She just keeps crying out after us. Someone once said being a pestered by a woman is like being pecked to death by a duck. <laughs> so these disciples are like, she's just annoying. Send her away. Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So you read this and you're like, these disciples are just kind of cold hearted. They don't really care about this one. These words are coming from the same lips of these guys that are ministering to Jesus, with Jesus and there's this crowd of 5,000 men and then however many women and children and they're hungry one day and the disciples' solution is just send them away. Just move them. Just, let's just get on with life. And now they're saying that. It's not they're referencing a crowd but they're referencing one person and you're like, what's with these guys as you read this? When you see this, the thing that comes to mind with me is this woman. What is she feeling? What is she sensing in the silence? Because you ever pray or you cry out to God in prayer, you're pursuing him, and it just seems like the heavens, it just seems like God is silent at times. I've been there many times. And there's this silence. What's going on in the silence? Maybe it's that Jesus is just saying, I'm not obligated to respond to this person. She doesn't have any basis of, of her appeal other than to just cling to the reality that God is good, that he is filled with endless mercy. Maybe the silence is Jesus saying to the disciples, you guys aren't in charge here. But it's in this silence that I think this woman's faith is growing stronger. We've talked about it being like a muscle that needs stretched. And I think in this moment, this woman's encouraged because she realizes Jesus is not going to go with the disciples' answer. He's thinking about this. He's pondering this. And it's in that moment that I believe her faith is being stretched. It's being challenged. And it's an encouragement to her. Stretching prayer like the early church that's willing to plead on behalf of James and Peter as we talked about. And I want to remind you, if you're going through maybe one of those seasons where it seems like God is silent, it never means that he's absent. That there are times in our lives that we pray and we sense almost this silence from the heavens. And it's not in those moments his displeasure, but a lot of times it's his development in our lives. He wants, he's there for this woman. The mission is the woman in this verse. And there's something that's being developed. There's something that's being stretched in her life. And a principle that he's trying to teach the disciples as well. But the third thing that we see from this verse is that a person of great faith is willing to press through. She doesn't give up. She doesn't walk out the door. She's not going to let the external circumstances, the frustrations 
of her environment, you know, stop her from pleading on behalf of her daughter because great faith presses through those things. She simply refused to be put off. And in verse 25, she kneels before him. Lord, help me, she says. The original word proskusino means this, that she knelt. Basically, it means that she worshipped. Many people believe that she bowed down. It's the same word that we see when the, the wise men or the magi visited interest, uh, infant Jesus. The Bible says that they bowed down and they worshipped him. We understand from the history that the Persians many times... They would fall to their knees and they would touch the ground with their forehead an expression of profound reverence. And so we don't know if this is an act of reverence or this is an act of complete and total worship. But we know that it's something that's humbling. We know that it's something significant. And we know that it's something that catches Jesus' attention. She's willing to stretch out in desperation as she worships him. She humbles himself, herself and she bows down before him. See, I believe that every spiritual blessing flows through the tunnel of humility. And this woman is basically laying down or she's bowing down in total and complete desperation. Psalm 91 or 51, 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. And she's, she's pleading. She's crying out on behalf of her daughter. She understands that she needs his mercy as well. But she cared for her to the extent that basically she's willing to press through and beg. Verse 26. You may want to grab your seats for these words. Jesus says, is it not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs? She's laying down. She's bowing down in humility. Jesus is almost calling her a dog. And you can read this and you can say, is he really using a derogatory name? And before you come to that conclusion, here's what I believe has happened. That Jesus is now painting a very specific picture with his words. And in the picture, there are the children that symbolize the Jews that are being fed before the household pets, with the, with, who are the Gentiles. The Gentiles had a history. This woman knew what it was like to be called a dog by the Jewish people. And in a Palestine household, which had children and these lap pets that were dogs, there are two different words in the original language for, for a dog. One was a guard dog that was a mean and ferocious dog, but the other dog was kind of like a lap pet. It was the dog that everybody cared for, everybody loved, and that was the wording that he's using. But as Jesus is painting this picture of this household and the children being fed first, it says that in the history, we would understand that the dogs would be given scraps from the table. And this woman, as Jesus is painting this picture, she sees herself in the picture. And she sees herself as this loved Gentile dog. She understood from the history that she wasn't of, a, of, of the family of Israel. So she wasn't entitled to the choicest morsels of food at the household table but she realizes that as this humble Gentile dog, she was still eligible to receive the crumbs that may fall from the master's table. And so as she's seeing herself in this picture, as Jesus is describing, she doesn't want to deprive Israel of God's blessings. 
But she's simply asking that some of those blessings would be extended to her in her area of need. RVG Tasker wrote it this way. He says, she does not stay to argue that her claims are as good as anyone else. She doesn't need to discuss whether the Jews are better than the Gentiles or the Gentile as good as the Jew. She's not there to dispute the justice of the mercy or the mysterious ways by which God works out his divine purpose, choosing one race and rejecting another. All she knows is that her daughter is grievously tormented. She needs supernatural help. And here in the person of the Lord, the son of David, is the one that's able to give her help. And she's confident that even if she's not entitled to sit down at the Messiah's table, that her as a Gentile dog should at least be allowed to receive some of the crumbs of the uncoveted mercies of God that fall from that table. And here she sees herself in the picture. And the idea is this, that there are multiple intimidating factors in this situation. You have the silence of Jesus. You have the disciples that are rebuking him or rebuking her. And now in this word picture, she sees herself because in verse 27, she says, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that are fallen from the master's table. Look at the contrast in this text. In Israel... Jesus is trying to convince people that he's the Messiah. And that the people are challenging him to prove it with signs and wonders. And now he leaves that region and he's in a Gentile territory. He meets this woman that's 100% absolutely convinced that he is who he says he is. And it's like her efforts can't even be discouraged. And this woman's faith is causing her to press through. She's not willing to give up. She's pushing through those distractions. And the final thing we see is a great person of faith is not willing to give up. When Jesus is quiet, she keeps begging for mercy. When he refuses, she still asks for more. Basically, she's saying, I'm not leaving with no as an answer. She's possibly going to be judged for being rude, for being arrogant, for being annoying. But then Jesus looks at her and says in verse 28, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Your daughter was healed from that very hour. This is one of two people in all the Bible that Jesus puts his finger on and says, great faith. Great faith. Gosh, I wish he said it about the disciples. <laughs> but to me, in this story, they're just like, almost like they're clueless. And then Jesus is saying, you know what, she has great faith. And it's because of that faith that her request is being granted. Moms, I would say to you this. You must have that same result in your family. That you don't quit. Never. Ever. People discourage you. You look at the situations and the circumstances. They don't line up. They don't make sense. Things are stacked against you. You push through. You press on. You pray. You cry. You refuse to give up. Cry out to God on behalf of others. Be 
a person of great faith. I'll take that over absolutely anything that my mom and dad did. And she walks away with the answer to her prayer. And you've got to wonder what the disciples are thinking. God I want to encourage you guys. Press on. What are our prayers to God? That they're stored in those. And it's as if they're waving those prayers as a fragrance in the sight of God. That the tears that are shed are being stored up. And He never forgets. And as you continue, you press on. You will. You will. Close your eyes for a minute as the worship team comes back. I just want to speak to you moms that are here today. Some of you have been praying 10, 15, 15 years. We don't live by what we see. We live by what we believe. We don't walk by what we see. We walk and we live by faith. And Lord, for every mom that's here today, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen